This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome back to the latest edition of In Class with Carr. And uh, you, you were saying that I had to send you back to school for this one. Yeah, you, you know. You back to school. Yeah, you sent, you definitely did. I mean, you asked me about the, uh, the Insurrection Act of 1807, and that sent me back to, uh, to do what we used to do when I was in law school. You know, that is, we, we up look, reading statutes, looking at legislative history, and uh, all I can say is that, uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it's certainly something we should be very much attuned to at this moment. This guy in the White House is, uh, he's talking in a way that clearly represents his kind of unhinged style, but it also represents very clearly some advice that he's getting from some folks who want this to go in a certain direction. That's clear uh, as well. Let's pause. So he, he cleared protesters, peaceful protesters, peaceful yes, protesters across uh, from the White House at a church. He, yes. he cleared them out so that he could walk across, hold up a Bible. <laughs> now, what's it, you're laughing because the bishop from that church called into CNN and said that not only did they not get permission to do that, it goes against the tenets of Jesus Christ. And she went off and she right. was like, this is, uh, it, it is against everything we believe in. And she was outraged that he would use their church as a prop. Now they well, said it's federal, it's federal land, and they could do whatever they want. Well, but, he used he used the military police and uh, national guard to do it. He used federal, yes. yeah, federal troops. But but let but let's be clear, it's ironic that the uh, the pastor of that church, uh, see Saint would say that because Saint John's is has been used as a political prop. Just about every sitting American president. I think the first president, if memory serves me correctly, and you know where that church is, that yellow church right across from the White House. You're going down 16th, and you get right before the White House, that block before the White House. It's that church on the left. Then when you get to the stoplight, you can't do nothing but make a left. You go around the White You see the White House there. But that's St. John. Every U.S., just about every U.S. president since, I think, James Madison has sat in those pews. Sometimes they go over there the Sunday before they're inaugurated, that kind of thing. So St. John's been a political prop for a long time. I mean, and I, you know, I understand, I understand the, uh, certainly the, the, the idea that this was a political exercise. And we know yesterday all the lights in the White House were out. And for at least an hour, according to reports, he was in the bunker in the White House. So he was cowering. So today, of course, that was his show of force with that Bible in his hand. So remarkable. Oh, wait, 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 wait. So are we forgetting the five deferments? Are we forgetting that this man had the opportunity to serve this country? And, and five deferments, couple for bone spurs. <laughs> and he's the head of the military. I, I don't know what it must feel like to be in our military right now and have this man as your commander in chief and you don't have any choice but to answer his call. That That is a very sad place to be for a lot of people, brothers and sisters in the military right now, to yeah. have to follow behind this person who has never led, never served, wouldn't right. serve. Right. Well, for some, um, yeah. it, it, it's interesting you say that and then say brothers and sisters because there, of course, we know a lot of our people join the military. Uh, Charles, Charlie Rango used to say this, among many others. You know, he said they abolished the draft, but really not for the poor. So a lot of poor people, a lot of black and brown people join the military for the benefits they can receive. GI Bill, this kind of subsidies to learn a trade or a skill. And that, that's a kind of an informal draft. It's almost like an economic draft. 
Now, those people, yeah, I can't imagine what it would be to be a woman or a man in the military staring down people who look like you and, and having to follow orders. But then there's another contingent. There's another element in the military who are not only comfortable with this guy, they prefer him because there's a kind of a fascist mentality in law enforcement, in the military. So that's there as well. Before you break down the 18, 1807 uh, insurrection law, is it? Is it a law? Yeah, the Insurrection Act, which, which actually Act. Went under, went, underwent a name change. Because, you know, like everything else in this society, Karen, these things have race shot all the way through them. So as we walk through just some very basics in the history of the Insurrection Act, it actually went through a name change in the wake of, um, of all things, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So we'll talk about that. So, yeah, we called it the Insurrection Act, but it also has another name, the name um, in fact, the enforcement of the laws to restore public order. Okay, and I, and I want yeah. to just ask, just before we get into breaking it down, because we're in class with Dr. Greg Carr, head of the Africana Studies Department at Howard University, and you can follow him at Africana Carr. Um, <laughs> this president mentioned something about the Second Amendment in his speech, and he said he was calling, he was going to be calling either if the governors do not use martial law or they don't use troops or the National Guard to clear out all of the protesters, or he called mm -hmm. them violent protesters, but mm -hmm. those people were peaceful today in, in Washington, D.C. They were very peaceful, but yes. tear gas and rubber bullets, they cleared them out. He said, yes. if you don't do it, I'm going to do it. And yes. then he said, I'm going to call on the military and civilians. So that is what got me on the phone with you, Dr. Greg Carr. <laughs> right, I, you called, you were like, whoa, whoa. And we started talking, I said, okay. He said, okay, we need to untangle this. He said, now go and look at this. It's okay, I'll, I'll sit down and refresh and then do a little bit more work. But that's clearly illegal. That's clearly illegal. And I mean, that's the politics underneath all of this. I think, you know, we've been talking about this. You've been talking about it on your show. You've been, I've been watching these videos as you're going back and forth, asking people and having conversations. Clearly this man, can count. Maybe it's rudimentary math skills, but he can count. He's not going to win a popular election. That's all about his rant about voter fraud with mail-in ballots. You know, the more people participate in the political process, the last chance fascism has to spread. So if, how many times have you heard and had people and you've been in conversation with over the last couple of years say, as we get closer to the election of 2020, this man may try to figure out how to start a war in this country and figure out a way to either suspend the election or some kind of way violate the process in a way that allows him to retain power. And then the pandemic hits. And then we see Brother Floyd lose his life and then the, the protests start. Well, so, Brother Brother Aubrey, Breonna oh, Taylor. Oh, you oh, know, no so it's, it's been like a drumbeat, you know. It, you know what, that's true. In the last few weeks, that's right, Ahmaud Aubrey, Breonna Taylor, and then Brother Floyd. And then you see, it's almost as if this is the opportunity that Trump and his close people would pray for. They may, and so, so when he says, you know, we're going to deputize people, and that very much is a, a battle cry of, the fasc of fascism. We're going to deputize regular folk. And of course, as he is saying, and we've heard, of course, we've seen the trial balloon that he's floated, uh, him, his hand-picked attorney general, who is absolutely worthless as an enforcer of the law, when they start floating the term Antifa. I mean, Antifa literally is short for anti-fascism. Now, you can't vouch for everyone who may be in an Antifa formation, but even, you know, our friend and brother Cornel West says, you know, in Charlottesville, when these white supremacists were attacking, and I was out there on the front line, he said, Antifa saved my life. 
In other words, the, these are some of those kind of, of the radical element, and by radical meaning, they're not gonna confront white supremacists and fascists or white nationalists and fascists in the street without responding. So they're not nonviolent. So if a white nationalist comes with a brick, some of these Antifa cats is like, okay, well, I got to get my brick. In other words, and Cornell said, they saved my life in the streets of Charlottesville because these white boys, they didn't, they didn't plow cars into the population. So that's that element. But when you say Antifa, he's using that language really to gin up this idea that there are, there are domestic threats to public order that can be identified and thereby trigger under, it could be under the, uh, you know, the Insurrection Act. The idea that he is authorized now if the state actors, meaning the governors, the mayors, cannot contain it for the federal government to step in. This isn't just willy-nilly talk for him. When you hear that phrase and Bill Barr and him talking about it, or this fool Tom Cotton, this uh, no-chance senator out of Arkansas, or that little uh, uh, prop that they have now, Kaylin or whatever, when they start saying Antifa, 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 it's more than just a dog whistle to their little cult people, their little clan of people. That is a term that they're trying to get into the public imagination as a specific threat. And then, of course, from there, we know from the FBI's uh, under, under Comey and them, when they start talking about black identity extremists, you're looking for ways to give labels to formations that you can then make your argument and say, you couldn't handle it in, in Georgia. You couldn't handle it in uh, Illinois. We know on the call for the governors today, Pritzker jumped back on him, you're racist, you're homophobic, you know, you're sexist. Yeah, but if you can't control your people in Illinois, I have to send it in and I'm going after Antifa, I'm going after any other formation, but that's what it, what's that what they're trying to do? They're trying to come up with these labels that will justify them pulling the trigger. So it's a couple okay. of things. So history, this is why we have, uh, so you have a, a law degree, a yeah. JD, and a PhD in history. Just want to be clear. Oh, my, you my PhD, oh, that's true. My PhD is in African-American studies. So people, okay. you know, they all, y'all refer to as a historian, but I, I deliberately went into Africana studies because our attitude is in in the university system with with many people major have different departments africana studies is about reframing the way we think about everything and so when you talk about language you know you, as you, you talk about we got to change the language that allows us to do that so we're not in history or philosophy or literature although we deal with those fields we think that every other field has been oriented in the western academy really as white studies so when you go into black studies, you're really trying to think about shape, change the way we think about everything. But anyway, yeah, yeah. But I, I don't practice. I do have a JD. I teach a class at Howard Law School on race and law. But so, you know, it's kind of, kind of oriented that way. But uh, but tonight, you have pulled the trigger. Oh, my God. No, well, let's, let's, not, let's, use, let's use different language. I haven't pulled any triggers. Very true. <laughs> you, have, you have activated our minds. Thank you. There we go. Because you, you know, a trigger at all. End, end up on some list somewhere, uh, which I'm probably that's on anyway. Is, that's part of it is the idea that to instill this threat of intimidation. So it really is to curb the idea that we have freedom of speech. But yes, no, you ain't pulling no triggers. We ain't pulling no triggers tonight. Mm -mm, no. <laughs> so, so the 1807 yes. Insurrection Act. Yes. I'm imagining if it happened in 1807 that black people probably had something to do with it, or I don't know, but you tell us. You would think, I don't know. right? Yes, because it's you in the 1800s. Right, and, and, and key phrases in this language of evoking the, uh, the federal government to intervene uh, include insurrection and public disorder. And we know in the federal, con in fact, the first mention I can think of in terms of insurrection is actually in the so-called Declaration of Independence 
when the colonists accused George III of stirring up insurrection among them, and they are referring to the Native Americans and the Blacks. So it always tickles me when I see Black people reading the Declaration of Independence on July 4, and they say, he has stirred up insurrection. I used to live in Philly. I would go down to Independence Hall and watch them read, and I would carry my copy of What to the Slaves of the 4th of July, where yes. he says, you know, they Frederick that carried Douglas. us off. Yes. yes, indeed, Fred Douglas. And he would say, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. And I would stand there in front of Independence Hall and watch. They always had a black choir. And so it's like, now they go read the Declaration of Independence. And when they get to that part and the crowd started cheering, the only black people down there was the choir, the elected officials, they have black mayors, things like that. And, but in the audience, in the, in, the, in the crowd, it's like going to a sporting event where you have all the players on the field. The only black people in the stands are the family of the players and everybody else white. It would be that same thing. But when I would see them say that and everybody would cheer, I'm like, they talking about you. So insurrection. <laughs> They accused George III of stirring up insurrection, and maybe one day we can talk about Charlotte of Mecklenburg, who was George III's wife. Who was uh, black? A, yes, black? indeed. There's, okay. there's a sister who wrote a book called Uncrowned Queen that talks about her lineage going back several generations. But at any rate, they accused George III of using the black people to stir up insurrection. Gerald Horn wrote a book about it as well, The, the Counter-Revolution of 1776. But at any rate, that's the first time you see the use. But when you get to the federal constitution, 1787, now you've got a country, you have a country before then, so they got this formation, but it's a loose formation of states. One of the clear walls they always wanted to, they erected early on, was the wall between state power and federal power, and the ability of the federal government to intervene in the states. There's always been that tension, that states' rights tension. One of the intersections they've always worried about is the distinction between military intervention and civilian intervention. They didn't want a setup where the military controlled by the federal government could come in and intervene in the states because they said, no, you can't do that. Each state is a separate entity. And even though we're in a federation, you can one of the things they were always worried about is you can't have the military intervene in us. And, re and remember early on, there is no standing army as such. They got militia. That's where that second amendment that people misinterpret come from. The reason there's a right to bear arms goes back largely to a moment when at the birth of the settler project, you don't have an Army, Navy, Air Force, and later on Marines, Coast Guard. You got citizens in their houses, white men in their houses. So if the British come back for a rematch, which they did in 1812, you got to get more people than your little army. So you want people to have guns and be able to, at a minute's notice, this is the Paul Revere. The British are coming. The British are coming. I got a gun at my house. Okay, now you in the Army. So the Second Amendment was formulated at a time when they didn't have a huge military. So... The first act we see isn't the, uh, the Act of 1807, it's the Militia Act of 1792. 1792, they have a situation where as these states have formed, people are doing different things, and so you gotta raise this military. 1794, they had a whiskey rebellion. Remember that there always been rogue white people in these states who had their own ideas about how they wanted to, uh, to govern themselves. Think about this, every time we see one of these MAGA rallies, or we see when these white nationalist rallies, they have their, they get the old flags with the 13 original stars. They get, the, and then they always had that yellow flag with the snake on it. Don't tread on Don't me. Don't tread on me, right. That's right. That, that's one of those flags from the period when they said, I live in this state. I have the right to shoot people, get off my property. I have the right to do what I want. But early on, the federal government was worried. Some people in the federal government was wor were worried that these elements, if left unchecked, could overrun a state, overrun a region, and ultimately undermine the federal project. So what do we see? 
1807, Tom Jefferson is president. Um, you see a, a situation where uh, they put down, but uh, they have an issue. They got an embargo that they established in the North. This is uh, on the border between Canada and the United States. And they have an embargo act to stop people from trading and selling stuff across the country lines. But these dudes in the United States are like, we make too much money. So they keep selling stuff. And the federal government passes an act, Thomas Jefferson issues executive order to send the military up there to stop them. Right. So that was an exercise very early on. But what, what does that, how does that deal with 1807? How does it connect? What is the authority the President of the United States has in the Constitution to do that? It's unclear. There are only two ways you can do it. Either it's Article 2. We hear Trump always talking about Article 2. Let's be doing anything I want. Okay, you shut up. Let's go and look. Article, <laughs> under Article 2, either the President has the authority to direct federal troops into a state and use them, or he doesn't. The argument in the courts, and it's really unclear, as to whether the president has it or the Congress has it. Because Congress can control the budget. Congress has the ability, supposed to have it, to declare war. That's the whole War Powers Act. But domestically, especially when you're trying to keep the military and the civilian things separate, who has the power to authorize and direct troops to go in? Domestically. It's very clear. So that's where you get this act. 1807. At that point, it kind of converges those, it, it doesn't settle the argument, it's still not settled, but what it does is say either the president has it under Article 2 of the Constitution or the legislature has it and under the Act of 1807, they have now delegated or given that power to the president. But if that's true, that means they could pass another law and take it back. So there's always this tension. So let, let's, let's go through it a little bit. They, uh, um, well, actually, no, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't 1807. They, they expanded in 1808. That's when, so the act was already in place in 1807. 1808 is when Jefferson sent the, uh, the troops up to, to stop this. Uh, they said they viol y'all violated the embargo act up here trading with Canada without our permission. All right, let's move forward a little bit. Now here's where it gets very interesting. I'm reading this like, what the hell? Um, Oh, and by the way, well, let's, 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 let me, let's think of this when race comes in. 1871, the Civil Rights Act. Now, this is the act when Ulysses S. Grant is president. The Civil Rights Act was passed because the South Carolina governor asked the federal government, U.S. Grant, who's a general, say, look, man, the Klan is down here riding high. And, I, and, and it sent me, I got a couple of books over here. I'm not going to stop but go look at them. Because there's this whole thing, the Ku Klux Klan trials. 1870 is when the Department of Justice was established. One of its directives was to go punish the Klan. So when you go look at the trial record of all these trials, they put the Klan on trial in the South under U.S. Grant. I mean, they're not wow. super heroic. But 1870 is a fascinating period. During Reconstruction, Grant is like, you guys are terrorists. So the governor of South Carolina is like, yo, I need some help. So they passed the Act of 1871, the Civil, Civil Rights Act of 1871. Some people call it the Ku Klux Klan Act. And they go in and it gives, the, gives Grant, the president, the power to send the troops in to go after the Klan. But that was, that was a governor inviting, the, uh, inviting the, the, the federal government. And under the Act of 1807, there's two ways to trigger. You can invite the president in or invite the federal government in or they can do it without your invitation. And we'll get to that in a second. Um, 
the next time, not the next, well, actually, there's another law that comes in. 1890. Boy, I tell you, we're always up in the middle of this. Why, of course, is the Klan rioting? Because the South was defeated and Black people have some political power in the South. And so, you know, the Klan is trying to terrorize people. So this is a, this is a time when federal intervention is used ostensibly in a way that would benefit Black people. We see that again. When do we see it again? We see it in the, oh, no, I should pause. Reconstruction ends, 1876. The election of 1876, hotly disputed. Because these white nationalists in places like North Carolina, other places, they have been clawing back power in the South. This is one of the ones we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about how they went in Louisiana and Crewshank and all that. They, slowly they're trying to push people out with this racial terror, threatening black people, the wars back and forth. By 1876, they are they are close enough they are close enough in power in like North Carolina, Tennessee, where they're getting close enough to think they can steal perhaps the federal election. The governor of Ohio uh, runs against the governor of New York, Rutherford B. Hayes versus Tilden, Hayes Tilden. This is where you get the Hayes Tilden compromise. After the election of 1876, there are three states that are in dispute in terms of counting the votes: South Carolina, Florida, I think Louisiana was the third. Says too close to call, and everybody's accusing everybody of stealing the election. In Congress, the argument is: see, the Klan was riding, all the racial terror was down there, and uh, sir, Mr. President, you sent the federal troops into the states of the South to protect the ballot box. But what we are accusing you of doing is sending the troops down there in a way that influenced the election so that the Republicans could win. So now his argument is like, see, because but, but what's, what has happened is he's triggered that act again and sent the troops into the states without an invitation of the governors, which you can do, but he's doing it because he said, this is beyond your capacity to protect. Y'all can't protect mm. the ballot box. It's beyond, so, th so this is the argument. So what happens? Well, after the election, which by the way, they gave to the, uh, to the Democrat, the Democrats, allowed, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. The Democrats allowed the Republican governor, Rutherford B. Hayes, to become the president. But in exchange, the Democrats got this from the Republicans. They agreed to take out of the South all the remaining federal troops. This is stuff kids learn in high school. The end of Reconstruction was when the troops left the South. But what we're learning now, as it ties to what Trump is talking about now, the thing that triggered the anger was this direction that allowed them to go in there in the first place. And the argument was, y'all can't protect the ballot box, which was a legitimate argument. Now, I'm sure you can, in fact, let me pause here and ask you, because this is, this is the stuff we all have seen on Eyes on the Prize. We know this from the veterans of the civil uh, rights movement. When have we seen the United States president send federal troops into a state. Just think, think Eisenhower, for example. When did Eisenhower send the National Guard or send federalized the National Guard? Think, think eyes on the prize. Think civil rights history. Yeah, um, Selma. Well, 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 not Selma, but although that would have been an argument, let's think about this. Think children. And school. Oh, the okay. Uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Exactly. There it is. Okay, Little Rock, Arkansas. The tomatoes thrown. The little That's girl right. with the pigtails. That's Golly. right. That's right. That's right. Ugh. We see it. No, 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 no. This, but see, no. The, the reason, exactly. The reason I said it is because a lot of this history we know, 
but we don't usually get a chance to layer it over in it and its contemporary meaning. That's exactly right. The great Daisy Bates out of Little Rock, uh, Arkansas, NAACP leader, the Little Rock Nine, Ernest Green and Autumn Cass. Eisenhower, under pressure now, because remember Louis Armstrong, who wasn't even considered like a radical, even Louis Armstrong spoke out. They said, oh, Mr. Armstrong, they send you around the world to be an ambassador for America. Louis Armstrong was like, yeah, you know, uh, you got these uneducated plowboys in the South, like Orville Faubus, and you got, uh, you know, Eisenhower need to go down there and walk that little girl into that school by the hand. Wow, man, y'all got Louis Armstrong, man? Y'all got him off the bench in the race fight? General Eisenhower, now President Eisenhower, federalizes the troops over the objection of the governor of Arkansas. And so that is the trigger of that 1807 law. No, I'm taking wow. over because you clearly can't protect. They have to spitting on these kids, but you know, we'll walk them in. We see it again, 1962, Mississippi. Remember the night before uh, James Meredith integrates the University of Mississippi, Ole Miss. Ross Barnett, the governor of Mississippi at the Ole Miss football game. Segregation, cheer, cheer, cheer. And who was the cheerleader in Ole Miss at the time? Trent Lott, Senator Lott is, a, is, a, is there. He's there that night. James Meredith goes to register. Here come all the races. So what does the president do? This is Kennedy, 1962. Federalizes the National Guard because Ross Barnett has shown you can't protect James Meredith and sends them in. All wow. the stuff burns, all the newspapers, people getting shot, all this kind of stuff. But James Meredith would have been killed trying yes, to rescue You know, but but again, under And the they ended up shooting him later. Oh yeah, that was the that was the march against fear. Some yeah. people say, let me put it this way, I never met James Meredith, but I would say this. James Meredith had the courage. You never know where that source of courage is. Now, yeah. it, you know, you know, our, our brother Kwame Ture, Stokely Carmichael. Before he well, made you look like you look like Kwame. You People look say like that him. all the time. His you sister do. told me that when his sister told me, I said it was you know all right. All right. It's a fact. Yeah, I believe it's a fact. You. But yeah. So but but it was funny because he, as he would say, James Meredith was either crazy or crazy like a fox. But whatever it was, he started that march in 1964 by himself, walking out of Memphis, and then he got yeah. shot. And of course, that's the last great march of the civil rights movement, <laughs> called for Black Power. But 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 Meredith, a couple of years before, integrated Ole Miss in part because the president sent the troops. When do we see it again? Sends the troops to Birmingham, 1963. So you're federalizing troops, but you're doing it over the objection of the governors, which you can do under the act of 1807. But why, and now how can you, oh, and a couple of other ones. Hurricane Hugo, you see the federal government uh, federalize National Guard, send them in, but that's with invitation. And then finally, the one that slightly changes the act is Hurricane Katrina. No, I'm sorry, 1992, actually, that was 1992, Hugo. 2005, we have Katrina. The Democratic governor of the state of Louisiana, Blanco, she's like, I want everything you got, Bush. I need everything you got. He's like, okay, well, I'm gonna, you know, we'll federalize the National Guard and we'll send off, he, she's like, no, no, wait, hold up. I want everything you got, but I'm not giving up control of the National Guard. Because remember, going all the way back, one of the chief concerns is you must keep the military separate from the civilian activity. I do not want the army down here. And in this case, this is the other trigger. You want the military separate from the police because you want the police to engage in, what, in the police functions, arrest, any type of police function. You don't want the military coming in, provide, doing arrest, doing law enforcement. You want them to do support. So she says, I want everything you got, but I want them in hurricane relief. 
I want them to deal with getting us out of this disaster. But what I don't want is a bunch of Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and there's only one branch of the military to which this doesn't apply. That's the Coast Guard. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, I don't want them performing like police. Oh, let me pause because I went too fast there. After the election of 1876, when they accused the Fed, the Feds of sending the troops down there and, and, and influencing the election, once the Democrats got back in power in the South, they got the muscle, they passed something called the Posse Comitatus Act of 1897. That's the act that says, in fact, let me just read it. Anyone except authorized by the Constitution of Act of Congress, unlaw unlawfully uh, using the Army or Air Force as a posse comitatus. Posse comitatus means the power of the country. It can be fined or imprisoned for up to two years. Uh, and the reason why, what the Posse Comitatus Act it was put in place to say to the executive branch, to the president's branch, you can't send people, you can't send the military into a state to engage in a police function. Because that, that, that comes with the bad taste in their mouth from what happened in Reconstruction when they include clues. So if we ask you to come in, you can do it. You can even override it if we can't uh, handle it. But what you can't do is send the military in to do police functions. And it's, it hasn't been clear. They've been battling this over the court whether the Posse Comitatus Act, the PCA, is a check on the 1807 law or not. So at any rate, let's get to the, 1800, uh, to the uh, 1807 Act. Let me, let's look at this very quickly. The, the uh, Insurrection Act of 1807, which is also referred to as the Enforcement of the Laws to Restore Public Order, it's in 10 U.S. Code Sections 331 through 335. And here's how it works very quickly. Section 331, that's the section that says, if the state official makes the request, the president can send in the military. Section 332 is, if there's no request, they can do it, but it's got to be to suppress a, a rebellion, and it's got to be and, and with evidence that the state or local entities simply do not have the capacity or, watch this, do not have the will or will not enforce the law. Now, this is, this is where it gets interesting. Remember that press conference today? What did Trump tell them at the press conference? Most of you are weak. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. That was on the call with the governor today. So of course that's Trump running his damn mouth, but it's also his advisors. Because what you make are trying to establish is y'all don't want to enforce the law. Right. That's exactly right. And under 10 U.S. Code Section 332, I don't have to get your permission if it's clear that you can't do it or you won't do it. That's that's really that. that go ahead. No, 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 no. I was gonna say thank you. Um, I want to do a piece just on the martial on martial law. Let's so, talk about that. Okay. Yeah, so, All right. So, so let's pause quickly. here. Let's pause. Okay. Cool, let's pause cool. and come back. All right. All right. This is Dr. Greg Carr. You can follow him at Africana Carr and check out the next one. <laughs>